Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast. My name is Ross Slutsky, and I'm an associate in Kelly Dry's communications practice. I am joined in the studio today by Josh Guyan and Chip Yorkaitis, who are partners in our group. Today, we will be talking about spectrum issues. Josh recently spoke on these issues at the Wireless Communications Alliance's Spectrum 2018 event, and Chip did so at the Pacific Telecommunications Council's 2018 conference. Chip, what are some of the big picture items that came out of those events for you regarding Spectrum? Well, Ross, as with most telecom conferences uh, in the past few years, there were several panels at PTC that provided some focus on 5G. 3GPP released the first of the global 5G radio standards in December 2017 with its new radio non-standalone standard, which I understand can be applied from 600 megahertz all the way through the millimeter wave spectrum at 30 gigahertz and above. The adoption of the new radio standalone standard is expected in mid-2018, completing release 15. And release 16, completing the 3GPP 5G radio access standards, is on schedule for 2019. As such, initial 5G deployments are expected this year, followed by the much-advertised full-scale commercial rollout beginning around 2020 and continuing for a number of years after that. But many questions surrounding 5G still persist. The carriers estimate spending hundreds of billions of dollars on 5G rollout over the next five to seven years, but it's still not clear what are the use cases that will allow them to recover their CapEx. Uh, One can still place bets on what the 5G killer apps will be. It's also apparent that 5G will be running over a number of platforms, not only the mobile carrier networks, but also satellites and airborne platforms, and there will be a heavy use of unlicensed devices. It's unclear whether the carrier network model will be the primary backbone of 5G or whether non-network solutions such as enterprise radio access networks outside the carrier's control will have an equal or greater role. Despite these nagging questions and uncertainties, regulators, especially here in the U.S., are preparing for 5G by making available spectrum, much spectrum, in a combination of low, medium, and high-frequency bands, and for both unlicensed as well as licensed use. Let's talk a bit about the FCC's mid-band NOI. The Notice of Inquiry focuses on spectrum between 3.7 and 24 gigahertz, and in particular sets out three specific bands that it focuses on, which include the 3.7 to 4.2 gigahertz band and the upper and lower 6 gigahertz bands. Yeah, and I think it's important to first note here um, that unlike the other proceedings that we're going to be talking about today, this one is actually a notice of inquiry. And so it requires another step for the FCC to get to rules. Um, They would need to um, seek comment, which they have, um, go to an NPRM, um, and then go to rules. But nonetheless, it's an important proceeding. Um, As you mentioned, they're looking at uh, between 3.7 and 24 gigahertz. Generally, this is um, for wireless broadband. About 80 parties submitted comments um, and varied proposals, um, but generally they include the ad hoc coalition, which includes Intel and Apple, and their suggestion for the 3.7 to 4.2 gigahertz band is for licensed mobile. 
and for um, uh, unlicensed services in the 6 gigahertz upper and lower bands. In addition, the uh, Broadband Access Coalition uh, proposes that the 3.7 to 4.2 gigahertz band be used for licensed fixed wireless point to multipoint, um, and others propose more uses for unlicensed devices. One important thing I think to note when looking at these um, midband spectrum is uh, that there are better propagation characteristics in these uh, frequencies than the higher frequencies. For example, like Spectrum Frontiers we'll be talking about later. Um, and there's potentially greater channel bandwidths than the lower frequencies uh, because the lower frequencies tend to be more crowded. Yeah, and the other thing that came out of the mid-band spectrum NOI uh, comments is that uh, there, there's interest uh, in the spectrum beyond uh, those three bands that, that Josh focused on, uh, you know, up in the... Uh, you know, the, the, the uh, 10 to 24 gigahertz bands, there were a variety of comments pushing for uh, new mobile uh, operations uh, in some bands, uh, expanded satellite operations, and stratospheric uh, airborne solutions. Uh, so the commission has a lot to sort out in deciding next steps. And if, you know, history with this commission is any indication, it might move very quickly from this inquiry stage to a proposed rulemaking. And, and the mid-band inquiry fills essentially a gap between the so-called low-band spectrum below 3.7 gigahertz and the high-band or millimeter-wave bands at 24 gigahertz and above. Uh, the Commission's been very active uh, above 24 gigahertz. Uh, we'll get into that later in discussing the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding and the Commission's new Spectrum Horizons uh, proceeding that uh, it's, it's looking to ex uh, initiate later this month. Uh, but below 3.7 gigahertz, there's been a, a lot of uh, action by the commission to make spectrum available. Um, there, there's the uh, broadcast auction, which was completed last year. There's a 39-month transition plan before the winners of that auction can uh, start to implement uh, and deploy in the spectrum that they've wanted auction. Uh, but there are also uh, recent auctions in the AWS-3 bands, up in the 1695 to 1710 megahertz band, as well as in the uh, 1755 to 1780 and 2155 to 2180 megahertz bands. That too is subject to a transition uh, before full deployment can be expected uh, as the federal government users uh, move out of that band, those that uh, aren't uh, able to stay under the arrangements between the FCC and NTIA. And there may be more low band spectrum made available as part of the spectrum pipeline in implementing uh, recent congressional legislation. Um, for example, the FAA, DOD, and other federal agencies uh, are examining spectrum in the 1300 to 1390 megahertz band, looking to make uh, as much as 50 megahertz available. And uh, most famously, the commission is looking to refine its rules in the 3.5 gigahertz band at the, at the upper portion of the so-called low band spectrum. Let's focus in greater depth on the FCC's efforts in the 3.5 gigahertz band. There's a lot of interest surrounding the planned use of spectrum access system administrators and environmental sensing capability operators. And this all raises a few questions. What is the status of implementation for those entities and what is the time frame for the NPRM in this proceeding? Furthermore, how likely is the FCC to import this model of spectrum management into other bands? 
Well, let's start with the first question first and, and, and kind of give the status, and then we can talk a bit about the sharing regime. Um, in October, uh, the FCC released an NPRM um, considering some changes. So we've had rules for 3.5 gigahertz for a while now, um, and Chairman Pai had t- specifically tasked Commissioner O'Reilly, um, um, who often does a lot of work on, in, in spectrum issues, um, with um, looking at possibly some changes in the 3.5 gigahertz uh, uh, rules. So they went to an NPRM in October. Um, They're looking at uh, changes potentially to make the spectrum more attractive for commercial wireless, things like longer license terms, um, renewal expectations. Um, And they're also looking at the geographic areas for the licenses, so possibly moving from smaller census tracts to partial economic areas, at least in some areas. Um, There could be a hybrid approach potentially where they might have PEAs in urban areas and use census tracts still in, in more rural areas. In addition, last week, the Wireless Innovation Forum announced that they had completed uh, the 10 standards that will comprise the baseline specification for commercial operations in the 3.5 gigahertz. This, what, what this does is allows a finalization of CBRS products. And finally, as far as the status of the uh, SAS um, <clears throat> Spectrum Access System Administrators, a number of those have been conditionally approved, um, including Google, ComSearch, and, and Sony. But they still have a bit of a process to, uh, to get to final certification. So they still have to undergo compliance testing. Um, they still have to have a trial period with real operations where they're pinging the database, the centralized database, in, in real time um, to allow a number of different party uh, um, users to, to use the system. Yeah, and the integration of all that with the environmental sensing capabilities is really something that we should all be watching because uh, what happens there in the 3.5 gigahertz band could be a model uh, for dynamic spectrum access in other bands. But to this point, uh, and you asked that question, Ross, uh, the the commission has not uh, imported or exported from the 3.5 gigahertz band uh, into other bands, uh, the SAS model. Uh, There was some talk about that and some of the bands being looked at in the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding, but the commission uh, thus far has declined to do so. Uh, But the the Dynamic uh, Spectrum uh, Alliance and and other uh, unlicensed proponents, uh, they're very eager to see the commission adopt a much more flexible a set of regulatory frameworks to allow more use of bands when the licensees are, are not actively using them. And Chip, do you think that also could be in part due to the complicated nature of this and it's still being worked out in the 3.5 gigahertz? They want to see if it's going to work uh, potentially to, to use it in other bands. Yeah, I think most of those that were uh, concerned about the commission importing this into other bands and Spectrum Frontiers pointed to the fact that it was it was untested, not yet implemented. So it's it you know a lot rides on how well this plays out on what some of the future regulatory frameworks might look like. You both have mentioned the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding. Can you tell us a bit more about what the commission's next steps will be in that context? Sure. Uh, just just to recap a bit where where they've been. They, they adopted two rulemaking orders in 2016 and 2017, and, and in the 2017 order this past November, they also had a second further notice of proposed rulemaking. So what they've done so far in a nutshell is that they've made 5.5 gigahertz of spectrum available for licensed upper microwave flexible use service, uh, or UMFAS. Uh, and this will be for both fixed and mobile terrestrial applications. Uh, some of the existing licensees in, in the bands that have been designated for UMFAS, uh, in particular the 28 and 39 gigahertz bands, already have a large number of licenses under the Part 101 fixed operational microwave rules. And uh, that includes NextLink, recently acquired by Verizon, 
and StraightPath and FiberTower, which Verizon and AT&T respectively are looking to acquire. These licensees will be grandfathered, but the rest of the spectrum will be auctioned probably after the 3.5 gigahertz auction, although I think the exact sequence hasn't been laid out. The Commission also designated 4 gigahertz of spectrum between 24 and 86 gigahertz uh, as core uh, satellite spectrum, and that, and that spectrum up in the, in the, uh, the Q and V bands, uh, up at 40 and 48 gigahertz. And they also made available uh, so far a total of 14 gigahertz of spectrum for unlicensed uses. Some of that was, half of that was before the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding, but they also made available an adjacent 7 gigahertz such that the full 57 to 71 gigahertz range is available for unlicensed uses. And, and as part of that November order, they relaxed uh, prohibitions uh, within Part 15 of the rules that prevented unlicensed devices in those ranges on aircraft. And so on mo within most aircraft, and, the, and that word within is important, within most aircraft, unlicensed devices in that range uh, can now be certified and deployed. Uh, but what that means is uh, on, on most drones, uh, that, that band will not be available. So in the, in the further notice that they came out with in November, uh, they're, they're looking at some of the bands uh, that they proposed for flexible terrestrial uses that they haven't yet ruled upon, and they also asked for comment on are there other bands between 24 and 86 gigahertz that the commission should look at. So they continue to try to mine that range as much as possible for new spectrum. And another important uh, spectrum management issue is uh, they've adopted construction requirements and performance requirements uh, as a condition to keeping your license uh, for OMFIS that uh, are geared toward sort of a carrier network build-out. But the commission uh, tries to be very flexible in how it makes spectrum available. It doesn't try to designate or dictate too closely how the spectrum is to be used and deployed and what services should be provided. And the commission envisions that at least some parties may be interested in spectrum uh, in the millimeter wave bands for IoT-enabled solutions and, and not fixed wireless access or, or, or other more traditional uh, types of services the carriers might provide. And so it's, it's asked for comment on what flexible or more uh, accommodating uh, performance requirements can we implement to not restrict these bands to a narrow swath of commercial services. The FCC is also addressing, through the second further NPRM, whether there should be pre-auction limits on spectrum holdings in the UMFIS millimeter wave bands, and what access and priority status satellite services should have in the 24 gigahertz band, which was recently designated for UMFIS in the November order. These, among other issues. As was briefly mentioned earlier, the Commission recently put out a draft notice of proposed rulemaking concerning spectrum above 95 gigahertz. What are the FCC's primary objectives for this spectrum? Yeah, so this is, I believe Chip mentioned earlier, this has uh, been named the Spectrum Horizons Proceeding, um, which at least is a better name than UMFIS, I have to say. Um, but, uh, Can't argue marginally. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the draft NPRM was uh, released uh, February 1st. And again, this is in keeping with Chairman Pai's um, procedures to release drafts of items about three weeks before the, the open meeting where they vote on them. Um, it generally seeks comment on permitting uh, fixed point-to-point -point services in a little over 100 gigahertz of spectrum, a lot of spectrum, um, modeled on the licensing regime that is already in existence for the 70, 80, and 90 gigahertz spans. 
Um, it also proposes about 15 gigahertz or up to potentially over 21 gigahertz of, of unlicensed spectrum, although the FCC has indicated that um, it has allocated quite a bit of unlicensed spectrum between 24 and 86 gigahertz already uh, in the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding that, that Chip was discussing. Um, it also looks to open up experimental licensing a bit. Um, there are only a couple of experimental licenses in the teens at this point in this in this high spectrum, um, and the FCC is looking to open that up a bit and allow new experimental licenses between 95 gigahertz and three terahertz, um, with no geographic or technology limits, um, longer license terms, um, transferability, things that would make experimental license a, a bit um, more attractive. Um, as far as technology goes, um, you know, we mentioned point-to-point, -point, things like that, unlicensed. Some have talked about uh, possible uses of this high-frequency spectrum as well for uh, things like terahertz spectroscopy, uh, which allows imaging analysis of pharmaceuticals and chemicals and things like that. Yeah, th this entire range is, is pretty much tabula rasa, and I think the commission, uh, to the extent they do adopt rules, will try to uh, maintain as much flexibility as possible. But they are mindful of, of some of the existing allocations. For example, radio astronomy uh, and some of the other passive services uh, operate in, in a number of these bands, and the commission will be sure to protect those. And they're also, uh, you know, to, to just parse just a little bit what Josh said about the uh, possible point-to-point you know, -point fixed links in 102 gigahertz of spectrum. I think the commission is mindful that some of those allocations uh, are also allocations to the fixed satellite and mobile satellite services. And so they, the way I read the, the draft order, uh, NPRM, is to focus uh, principally on the uh, fixed spectrum that does not have satellite uh, allocations, and that's still a large amount of spectrum. It's, I mean, it's 36 gigahertz of spectrum. Uh, but the commission will definitely remain uh, very flexible in how it implements the rules because it's, it, it, it's, it's hard to see exactly how this spectrum will be used because the propagation characteristics are much different than uh, what occurs uh, lower than this. And it seems you can be a little bit more flexible when, when you're dealing these higher end frequencies and then there's, when there's more available, right? You tend to, to have more micromanaging of, of what things are going to be used for down in the cr more crowded kind of areas. Yeah, it's more available and because of the propagation characteristics, the, the, the propagation paths are shorter before you start losing a lot of energy. And so compatibility and coordination is, is in general a lot easier uh, in these bands. The FCC also released a draft notice of proposed rulemaking that would set forth rules on how to implement Section 7 of the Communications Act, which is designed to promote rapid action on new technologies and services. What opportunities does this proceeding present? Yeah, so I think um, one interesting aspect about this proceeding to note is, you know, we're talking about spectrum here. Um, this one actually is not limited to just spectrum. I mean, this can be new technologies and services that could be wireline, you know, um, things like that. But obviously, this presents a really uh, interesting opportunity for new technologies and services that are that are wireless, and there are obviously a lot of those being being developed. Um, so the FCC released a draft NPRM um, also on February 1st. Um, as you mentioned, it's supposed to facilitate entry of new technologies and services. Um, they're looking to build rules around um, a 1983 law that uh, so this is the Section 7 that required the FCC to determine whether any new technology or service proposed um, is in the public interest within a year. And so this is a good opportunity to help accelerate commission action on um, exciting new technologies. Um, it, however, I'll note that it is unclear um, what exactly the FCC would do within a year. They left themselves a, a lot of wiggle room there um, to figure out whether they would you know, move to rules, move to an NPRM, um, or do something different. 
And one of the things that is when you're putting the meat on the bones of, to figure out how this is going to operate, one of the things the commission has to do is figure out, well, what truly is new? Um, you know, everyone's going to come in with um, proposals that what they're doing is new and, and different. Uh, and so, and there's not good opportunities for that. But the commission wants to make sure that they put a little bit of a, um, you know, a guard at the door here. Um, and so the determinations would include things like, you know, if it's not been previously authorized by the FCC and how it differs from, from other um, – uh, if it has other technologies, if it has been authorized previously, um, the petitioner would need to show, um, you know, that they're making extraordinary enhancements, you know, something um, beyond just the next step in the technology. Um, in addition to that, in the in the initial application or petition, um, the petitioner needs to demonstrate um, that this technology or service is technically feasible and that it's commercially viable. And those are two, you know, pretty decent-sized hurdles um, for a new technology or, or a new idea um, to, to demonstrate at the outset like that. Yeah, and, and a couple points that I would add to that, Josh. The uh, the commission is looking to adopt procedural rules. They're, they're, while the statute that they'd be implementing is, is promoting new technologies and services by saying the commission should take some action within one year uh, where there is a petition or application with such technologies or services, the commission is not proposing to create any sort of presumption in favor uh, of those technologies or services. It's merely providing a procedural vehicle where it will make a determination whether and what action to take. One part of the draft NPRM, which is encouraging, however, is that um, if there is a petition for rulemaking, for example, that uh, makes a claim that they're subject to Section 7 treatment, it sounds like the commission uh, proposes to put that on public notice quite quickly uh, and with 90 days to have the relevant offices or bureaus make a recommendation as to whether or not they find that Section 7 applies to the technology or service. And that could be very helpful because that will get uh, the new technology and service and the proposed rules uh, out for public comment uh, quite quickly. Uh, whether that leads to an NPRM uh, remains to be seen. Uh, the other thing to mention is this statute is already on the books, as Joss mentioned. It's been there for more than three decades. Uh, and, and, and so those who believe they have a new technology or service today uh, that should receive Section 7 treatment don't need to wait for the commission to finish this rulemaking. They can make a filing now. There have been a number of those in the past, as the draft NPRM discusses. Some received Section 7 treatment, some did not. But if, if someone has a service like that and they and they want to try to move for quicker commission action, they should probably follow the draft NPRM as a guide, even though the commission has yet to implement the rules. Yeah, and I'll dovetail on that, that uh, there's also provision in there once, if they do come up with rules that it, this doesn't have to be a new petition. If there's one that's been pending, that you can apply, you know, kind of retroactively apply, make the demonstrations and, and try to fit your petition that you may not have thought about this done a year ago. You can try to fit, you know, the Section 7 framework around your petition. So, so if you've already done something you think is new and innovative, um, don't think you've missed the boat here. You might be able, still be able to go back and, and, and apply it. Yeah, and that may, that may have to wait for the new rules. But... Right. Right. That's right. Good point. Well, the FCC is plainly forging ahead on a wide variety of important spectrum proceedings right now. How do the current activities of the commission compare to what is going on in this field internationally? Well, uh, certainly each country is free to uh, manage spectrum within its borders uh, using its own determination of, of, of what's appropriate. But uh, what we can see is that many countries in Europe and Asia are, are moving in fairly similar fashion to what the United States is doing, even if some of the details vary. For example, 
Uh, we discussed the 3.5 gigahertz ban and the NOI looking at 3.7 to 4.2. Uh, countries in Western Europe and most advanced nations in Asia, as well as Australia, are, are all looking at spectrum in the 3.4 to 4.2 gigahertz band as key bands for the initial rollout for 5G within their countries. Um, the, the bands aren't exactly the same, but they're close enough that uh, that'll allow for international harmonization in equipment, uh, using tuning range capabilities, which will hopefully allow these equipment to be uh, introduced more quickly and, and the costs come down. Uh, and in fact, the UK and South Korea ha have announced that uh, in the middle of this year, they will be uh, conducting auctions uh, for Spectrum in this range. Uh, others anticipate later licensing, and we'll see how quickly the United States can follow suit. Um, similarly, in the, in, the, in the KA bands, up around 24 to 29 gigahertz, again, there's, a, there's some variation, but a lot of the same countries are looking at that as another band for 5G. And, and this also fits in with what's happening in the International Telecommunication Union, where agenda item 1.13 uh, for the radio communications conference that will be held in 2019 is looking at a number of spectrum bands in the 24 to 86 gigahertz range for uh, international mobile telephony. And, and most people are translating that into 5G. A lot of these are ones the FCC has already looked at or will be looking at in the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding, so you have that bit of precedent. Uh, but uh, th this agenda item, I think, will allow for additional harmonization within the world. Uh, and, and, and in addition, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning uh, of the podcast, the 5G puzzle is going to include uh, multiple platforms, uh, mobile, fixed, airborne, satellite, and the, the International Telecommunication Union is looking at another, uh, a number of other items uh, at the 2019 conference uh, that will uh, examine and study spectrum uh, for uses on these other platforms. All right. Thank you to Josh and Chip for sharing your views. Kelly Dry will continue to address these issues both on the podcast and our blog, which you can reach at comwellmonitor.com. Thank you. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.